This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to speak very briefly about language barriers in medicine, which is what I study. And I thought that I would talk about three things, which is how they impact the care of our patients, how we should work to overcome them, and then what does the study of language barriers teach us about communication in more general terms between uh, doctors and patients or more broadly between clinicians and patients? So here goes. Why study language barriers? Some of you may recognize some of these pictures. This is uh, the Mediterranean. These are Syrian refugees. This is uh, France, a subway station, uh, or also, I believe, uh, Syrian refugees. This is L.A., um, a picture out of uh, last year. And all of this is to say that at no time in history have there been more people on the move, more people, millions of people, going from one area to another area. Uh, and that has caused all sorts of uh, wonderful things and all sorts of cultural and social issues. But in healthcare, what it's meant is uh, the inevitable encounter of language barriers for the patient, for the clinician. So, again, this has uh, been uh, uh, a growth uh, of an issue throughout the world. In the United States, um, the limited English proficiency population, which is people will abbreviate that as LEP, people who don't speak English, uh, well, are, um, has been growing. Um, we're looking to the next census next year to see exactly uh, by how much. But essentially, there are uh, one in five people in the United States speaks a language other than English at home. And of those, so about 20% speak non-English language at home. And of those, about half are, are LEP. And we define LEP, uh, there's an accepted definition in literature that comes out of the U.S. census question. Some of you will remember when you fill out the census, there's a question that says, how well do you speak English? And the answers, choices are very well, well, not well, or not at all. And you check the box. And out of this, if we define as having limited English proficiency people who speak English less than very well, okay, so well, not well, not at all, about 45% of these 20% are LEP. If we use a more stringent definition and we say um, that um, that it, that it, it is people who who report speaking English not well or not at all, then it's about a quarter of those. Overwhelmingly, the language that these folks speak is Spanish. About 62% in the last census reported speaking Spanish. And the next most common language was Chinese, which the uh, uh, census has as one category, despite the fact that obviously there are many languages, such as Mandarin, Cantonese, Toisonese, etc., that could be grouped under Chinese. And that's around 4%. The rest of the languages, which are predominantly Asian and European languages, are under 1% uh, to 2% of the, of, the, of the population. So 
This shows the growth of U.S. linguistic diversity between 1980 and 2007. And I think it's probably going to have leveled off with this next uh, census, and it'll probably stay at somewhere between 20 and 22 percent of the entire population. That's a lot of people who don't speak English, and I was trying to think about a good way to show that and to think about that, and I made this graph for myself. So if Latinos in the United States, Latinos are now 18% of the, of the U.S. population. If Latinos uh, were a country, uh, they would be 54 million. And it would be the, mo- the largest country other than Mexico grouping Latinos. If you look at Latinos who are Spanish speakers, foreign-born, that's 35 million people. So that is a country about the size of my native Argentina. And if you look at people in the United States who speak only Spanish, who really speak English, not at all, it's around 11 million people in the last census, which is to say more than in the country of Nicaragua and Costa Rica put together. So it's a lot of people who really don't uh, speak English very well and don't speak it well enough to communicate uh, with their physician or, or, or uh, clinician in English. Which brings us to San Francisco General, uh, which, as you know, uh, the Level 1 Trauma Center for San Francisco. San Francisco is one of the great melting pots of the world, one of the great cities of uh, where, um, the, where the world comes in. We think it's the second most ethnically diverse medical center in the U.S., the first being in, anyone want to guess? Where would be the other most diverse city in the U.S.? New York. New York, exactly. And we think it's, and we think that San Francisco General is beaten out by Elmhurst and Queens as the single most div- uh, ethnically diverse uh, county. Uh, but other than that, we have 140 languages spoken per month at San Francisco General. And there's about 300 languages uh, within San Francisco Unified uh, in, the, in the school district, give you the sense. We have uh, uh, about 25 professional interpreters on sites uh, speaking 12 languages. Um, we have two vendors um, through the phone through which we access another 200 languages. We have at least one of these polycom phones on each unit and sometimes in the outpatient center, sometimes in each room. And we also provide video interpretation in our outpatient clinics, and I'll I'll show you uh, what that is in a minute. So we are a very richly endowed uh, hospital to help us get through language barriers. So here are a physician and a patient listening uh, to the interpreter through the phone. You can see how that works. Obviously very difficult if you have hearing problems. Um, and no visual uh, cues, but it is by far the dominant form for providing interpretation in the U.S. This is an in-person interpreter, someone who comes to the bedside or who participates in a family meeting or who comes to the clinic. Um, These folks um, uh, can 
be right there and can help understand and to a certain extent represent the gold standard in interpretation because um, they have the most ability to pull together uh, the conversation. And this is what we have been using uh, more and more. Here you can see it's actually on an iPad. The interpreter is on that iPad. We don't actually use an iPad. We use a, a video monitor sort of like this that we roll into the rooms. Um, but these are um, excellent and have become the new standard uh, of in a professional interpretation because they allow for a professional. They are efficient. The interpreter doesn't have to race all over the building, but rather can be seated. In our case, it's the interpreters are seated in a building uh, three blocks away uh, down the street uh, from San Francisco General. They allow the interpreter to bring in visual cues. Um, to see what the patient is gesturing or what, what the clinician is gesturing. My favorite part about them is that they allow for privacy. So if I'm doing, say, uh, 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 an exam on a woman and would like to have the interpreter present uh, but uh, don't, don't want to uh, um, have the person in the room, what's fabulous about this is that you can just turn the monitor around, point it to the wall, and have the person participate in interpretation while uh, protecting uh, the patient's uh, privacy and modesty. And because of this, it's become the current standard. So professional interpreters are clearly what we recommend for use in overcoming language barriers. All right. But what's the biggest problem with the interpreters? The single biggest problem is that we don't use them. Um, so even as a place as richly uh, endowed with interpreter services as San Francisco General, underuse of interpreters is reported by patients who will tell us at the end at discharge that they are unhappy with the amount of language uh, access care, the amount of uh, care that they got. It, they're reported by our own physicians, our own residents, who fill out anonymous surveys and say, yeah, I uh, call the interpreter on the day of admission, I call the interpreter on the day of discharge, but you know, when I was rounding, I d it didn't seem to be necessary. And they're reported by our students, who report this as the number one healthcare disparity in our uh, system, as some of you who were here when I gave my first talk uh, might remember. This obviously creates huge medical legal issues in care if we're not talking uh, with our patients. But one interest is how does it impact uh, our relationship uh, with our patients? And here are some quotes from our students. We rounded on a non-English speaking patient without an interpreter every day. Family, friends, or young children were asked, asked to act as interpreters due to lack of appropriately timed interpreter availability. A doctor delivered a diagnosis of LCIL, that's a precancerous condition, on a pap smear and gave follow-up recommendations, all in English, despite me telling her the patient was primarily Spanish-speaking. So the problem, the biggest problem with interpreters is that, is that we, don't, we don't use them enough. And it's really, when I say we here, it's us as uh, physicians and clinicians, we're, because we're the ones, despite telling patients that interpreters are available and they're free and so on, uh, we're the ones who tend to be the ones who request the interpreters. But what happens when we do use them? 
they're terrific. They are terrific. And again, I only speak two of the 140 languages well, and a third so-so. That leaves me with, whatever that is, 137 languages that I can encounter in a month at San Francisco General that I don't speak at all. And I completely rely on our interpreters. But how good are interpreter-mediated clinical interactions? And that's something I've studied a lot. And what I can tell you is that they're, in general, associated with less patient satisfaction, less comprehension, less trust in the physician, and then on the physician side, much more difficulty eliciting symptoms and then difficulty eliciting the patient perspective. And this comes from data like this. This is not one of my studies. This is a study out of Bellevue in New York City, the San Francisco General of the East. And here, what the, um, what the uh, researcher was trying to study was what, which interpreter system was better, excellent interpreter system A or excellent interpreter system B. And that was her study question. And when people came into the ER, they were randomized to get interpreter system A or interpreter system B unless they happened to end up with a doctor who spoke their language, and that's called a language concordant doc, Right? As they left the ER, a research assistant asked them questions about <coughs> did they think they understood the doctor's explanations and did they think they understood the instructions. Well, what's important to note here is that regardless of whether you were excellent system A or excellent system B, you were mu- they were more, much less likely to report understanding the doctor's instructions than if the doctor spoke their language. Everyone sees that? So 60% of the patients, or another way of saying that is only 60% of the patients understood the doctor's explanation, even when it was in their own language. But only about 40, 35 to 40% understood it when it was through one of these state-of-the-art interpreter systems. And similarly about 63% understood the follow-up instructions, take these medications or go, you know, whatever, use this bandage, come back on Thursday, um, when it was delivered in a language they understood. And here's where those language and literacy issues merge because uh, often immigrants also have low literacy in their country of origin. But less than half understood it through this interpreter. So even professional interpreters uh, make it difficult. Uh, uh, Even with professional interpreters, overcoming comprehension in language barriers is very difficult. And this is something that's hard for us as clinicians to understand. We think, hey, the person's repeating what I'm saying in that language. You know, what's the big problem? So, okay. Maybe people don't understand everything or they say they don't understand, but does it really matter? Does it impact the actual care? I mean, if someone comes in with a broken arm and you set their arm, you're kind of done. There's not that much to understand, right? Well, what about when it's glycemic control in patients with diabetes? And here's a study that I did with colleagues at uh, Kaiser uh, Permanente. And here we looked at people who switched doctors. 
either because the doctor left or because they ended up switching for whatever administrative or personal reason. And we said, let's look at people who switch from a doctor that doesn't speak their language, a language discordant doctor, LD, to a language concordant doctor. But let's look at all the switches, discordant to discordant, concordant to discordant, and concordant to concordant, right? And we said, let's look at their glycemic control before the switch, and then let's look at their glycemic control after the switch. And what you can see is that glycemic control doesn't change very much, except here, right? That's it. These two are more or less the same. This one's a little bit more or less the same. This one's more or less the same. But here there's a big switch. When people switch from a discordant doctor, someone who doesn't speak Spanish, to someone who does speak Spanish, the, the proportion of people with a good glycemic control under 8 improves uh, about 15 points. That's a lot. Um, similarly, if we look at people who were in bad control and we, and we look at what happened when they switch, the, if they went from a, a discordant doctor to a concordance, or from someone who doesn't speak Spanish to someone who did, the proportion of people in poor control falls quite dramatically. So what we saw here, and, when, and we also looked at the people, the subgroup that only switched because their doctor left, their assigned doctor left, just to make sure that there was no bias uh, introduced in who was switching. And what we, what we found here is that switching to a doctor that speaks your language appears to be associated with improved glycemic control uh, for patients with diabetes. So it isn't only that the comprehension is better, but it actually impacts a clinical outcome. So that's a problem. That's a problem for me as a doctor. It poses an ethical issue. Right? I want to be a really great doctor, but I only speak two and a half languages. And I see patients in tons of languages. So what to do? So here are distilled lessons that I use when I teach my residents. First, only use professionals when you're doing healthcare training. None of this family, friends, and certainly not young, certainly not children, uh, um, youth, which is uh, illegal in addition to being of uh, questionable ethics. Try to ensure that the interpreters are part of the healthcare team. I far prefer to use our own interpreters than to do a commercial line where that person may be interpreting for healthcare interaction one minute and from some corporate interaction the next minute. I want people who are trained in the ethics of a healthcare team. Elicit the patient's perspective. There are a number of studies, um, including some of mine, that shows what happens in the room when you're trying to um, uh, talk to a patient across a language barrier. And what happens is that as clinicians, we tend to over-control the conversation. I become so focused on telling my Cantonese-speaking patient with diabetes, take the metformin twice a day and the cholesterol medicine once a day, and please don't put too much sugar in anything, that I'm so focused on that that I've never stopped to say, what do you think about taking the metformin? 
What is your biggest worry about having diabetes? What do you want me to know? Not to mention, I don't do any of the idle chatter, which is called social bonding jargon, uh, social bonding, (coughs) hugely important with patients, be it, did you see the giants, or how's your family, or I'm so sorry I kept you waiting, come on in, whatever. I'll cut out all of those things in order to say, hello, interpreter, hi, Mr. Chow, how is your diabetes? Are you taking the metformin twice a day? All of that stuff helps inspire trust. It helps us bond. It helps us, it helps us feel that we have something in uh, a way in which we can speak with each other so that when I finally say, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about your diabetes or I think you may need an operation on your eye, that there's the, the trust is there. So elicit the patient's perspective as that goes away. And then finally, check for understanding, trust, and satisfaction. What lessons then from studying language barriers can we take toward communication in general? I think I have uh, three things. One is that as physicians, we tend to define communication in terms of our own needs for information. When, when we say to the residents, why did you call an interpreter for that interaction but not for another, the residents will say, oh, because that one was really important. I needed to talk to the patient. Chemotherapy, yes. Chemotherapy, no. Anticoagulation, yes. Or anticoagulation, no. I needed their opinion. As opposed to, why didn't you talk, call an interpreter when you rounded yesterday or the day before or whatever? And they're like, well, you know... The patient was fine, right? So we conceive of communication in terms of our need to know, not the patient's need to know or the patient's need to tell. Is that that clear? Second, that no matter... It is really easy to completely ignore the patient's perspective on illness. And that the language barrier studies make that super clear to me, that I can go through the entire day using interpreters on every interaction and have never elicited the patient's perspective on anything. It is very easy to do. Um, and, uh, and it makes me wonder whether I do that, not only with my inter- patients with language barriers, but whether with patients in general. And third that good communication requires, um, at the risk of sounding trivial, that good communication requires constant attention uh, to the patient's perspective and also to the patient's comfort in communication. Are they feeling comfortable, either with the interpreter or with me, in the act of communication? Is this uh, easy-flowing communication in which their voice can be heard. So those are the things that I have most learned from studying language barriers, and one of the many reasons I think we should continue to study them, um, though the, obviously the, 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 the elephant in the room is that we are a diverse world that is becoming uh, more diverse. And regardless of whether we want to build a wall or bring in more immigrants, um, uh, people are here and, um, and they get sick. And it is our job uh, to take care of them. So understanding the uh, 
um, joys and limitations of that is, I think, uh, exceptionally important. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.